Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I am your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, and coming off of the Best of 2022 episode, I'm moving into a new set of topics for these next couple episodes. So they're kind of going to be two sides of the same coin, where in this episode I will be talking about the witch finders or the witch hunter type figures in the 60s and 70s films, and in the next episode I'll be moving on to talking about the witches themselves in these 60s and 70s horror movies. Now these are not to be confused with the 70s, what we saw a lot of you know, mixed in with, like, the vampire hunting and the vampire movies there, although the two bear a striking resemblance when you put them side by side. I was thinking some of these, I was like, oh yeah, this would fit into the witch category, and I was like, no, those are vampires. So, uh, they do walk a fine line, they're all kind of the same type of film, but for these ones, I think I got the biggest ones. I think I nailed the main witch hunter movies. Now, the witch movies, there's a lot more, but we're going to go ahead and get into this. The ones that I picked to talk about today are Witchfinder General, Mark of the Devil, The Blood on Satan's Claw, and this last one is The Wicker Man. Now, The Wicker Man isn't necessarily a witch hunter movie. You know, it deals with a Christian police officer looking into a disappearance on a pagan island that's still practices the old ways, but I can't rightly talk about Witchfinder General and The Blood on Satan's Claw without including that one in it. And it does kind of have a witch hunter aspect in the sense that, you know, the sergeant going to the island is kind of on a crusade and threatens to, you know, take down these people's way of life. Now, whether he has any authority behind that is another matter. And the reason why I'm including these three films. These have been referred to, and I know Mark Gaddis has, on his History of Horror uh, BBC specials that he did, he referred to these as kind of the birth of folk horror. Now, I don't think, and Severin has definitely showed us that it's not necessarily the birth of it, but I think these are three of the most high-profile folk horror movies of all time, especially when you talk about The Wicker Man. And together, these have been called, like, the Unholy Trinity or the Unholy Trilogy and things like that. They've just always usually been talked about together because they're from the same time period. They are the early workings of folk horror, and they have around the same subject. I mean, I can see why people call this, like, the birth of it because for the longest time, I don't think... You have to remember, a lot of the stuff that we're digging into and these horror movies, a lot of them have been unearthed in the last couple decades, I would say. Like, we knew about them, they happened at the time, but there hadn't been any modern releases, or especially ones from other countries where it's like that Severin set is digging out stuff that I've never heard of. And I think that's more common than you think. Because a lot of these movies are getting releases because of these niche labels are these very specific labels that are putting them out. And those really only started popping up. I mean, I will talk about that a little later on another topic. But those haven't been around for that long of a time period. Whereas these three films were much more high profile, which I don't even know if Blood on Satan's Claw was. 
because that one was kind of, I don't know, I learned about that from Mark Gaddis's BBC special, which I think was back in like 2010, he did that. So that's when I figured out, or found out about that. But essentially what we're saying is these are all four of them folk horror classics. And I'm going to go ahead and jump right in here because this is what binds them together. I just thought it would be fun to sit down and talk about the history of these. And there's a lot more interesting stuff behind the scenes on these than I expected there to be. So let's go ahead and get started with Witchfinder General. A little background on what this is based on because this is, you know, semi-based on true events. Between 1645 and 1647, Matthew Hopkins and his assistant, John Steam, worked as witch hunters in eastern England. They were essentially paid by local authorities to torture and murder suspected witches. Now, Hopkins' reign was only stopped when he died of consumption, or what we know now as tuberculosis, in 1647. But before that, he published his book, The Discovery of Witches. Now, in this book, he referred to himself as the Witchfinder General. So this is where we get the title of Witchfinder General. So this is all kind of based around Matthew Hopkins' life. Uh, let's flash forward to 1966, when Ronald Bassett writes the novel Witchfinder General, which is very loosely based on Hopkins' days as a witch hunter. The founder of Tygon British Film Productions, Tony Tenser, read a pre-published version of this novel and decided to scoop up the film rights to it. In 1967, Michael Reeves was coming off of directing The Sorcerers for Tygon and was tasked with creating an outline. Tenser was excited about his outline and had Reeves start work on a full script. Tenser told him they had to start filming by September of that year if they wanted to avoid the cold weather, so they were on a bit of a time crunch. He brought in his friend Tom Baker to help him co-write the script. Baker had previously helped Reeves on The Sorcerers. They wrote the role for Donald Pleasance, and that is the role of Matthew Hopkins, and initially made the Hopkins character a ridiculous authority figure who was all in all ineffective. They wrote it this way because they knew Pleasance could pull it off. However, once AIP American International Pictures came aboard, they insisted on using Vincent Price, who was already, you know, under their employment. The two had to rewrite the character as more of a conventional and straightforward villain to fit more with Price's forte. And that's not to take anything away from Price, they just didn't think he could pull off what they wanted to go for. Tensor was required to present the script to the British Board of Film Censors in August, and was called an ape while they referred to the script as perfectly beastly and ghoulish. And I assure you that is not a compliment. When the censors sent the full report, the script was called A Study in Sadism in which every detail of cruelty and suffering is lovingly dwelt on. Now, I feel like if you read that review today, that might be go along with a positive score, but I don't think the critics of the time were taking that in that way. So, a second draft was treated in almost the same way, but this time the board sent a list of changes in order to let the film be made. Now, can you imagine that? They're not just saying, these are changes you need to make to get 
this film in theaters, you make this or it's not coming out. Reeves and Baker had to tone down their final script by a lot in order to get it approved. This version of the screenplay was missing many of the more explicit moments of violence described in the first submitted drafts. Now, I want to go into a little bit of these because I think it's interesting to see what films could have been if stuff wasn't cut out. So, uh, this included the death spasms of the pre-credits hanging victim, uh, Lowe's getting stabbed 15 times with a steel spike, and a sniper's victim somersaulting through the air and slamming into a tree. A sequence depicting the Battle of Naseby was to be filmed, during which a soldier's head was to be cut off on screen, and most significantly, the film's finale was completely altered. The original ending, uh, Steam falls in with a group of gypsies and attempts to rape one of their women, who successfully fights off her attacker by plunging her thumbs into his eyes, blinding him. The gypsies then stake him to death. After that, Marshall arrives and convinces the gypsies to assist him in ambushing Hopkins. Hopkins is viciously beaten by Marshall, who forces a confession out of the bloodied man. Marshall partially drowns Hopkins, whose thumbs have been tied to his feet, then finally hangs him. Tensor had previously expressed concerns regarding the scope of the Battle of Naseby sequence, as well as the gypsy ending, as these scenes would both require the employment of additional groups of extras. He asked Reeves and Baker to remove the battle sequence and simplify the ending for the final draft. I don't know about you, but that ending sounds pretty poetic to me. Poetic in its justice, but that's something we're never going to get. I understand that probably would have had a hard time getting through the censors anyway, but yeah, I could I could see where hiring more extras would add to the film cost of the budget. And we see that happen a lot when endings get out of scope. It's not necessarily that it's too violent or too anything like that, it's just going to cost too much money, so... We got what we got, and I think the ending we have to this movie is pretty disturbing. Price and Reeves constantly clashed, and Price felt he never knew what the director wanted. This role was described as one of the most challenging for Price, and he considered it one of his best performances. They were given a budget of £83,000, of which AIP contributed 20000 for the production, and 12000 just for Vincent Price's expenses. So they almost gave the same amount for Price as they did for the contribution of the production of the movie. This was Tygon's most expensive film they ever produced. On the flip side, it was considered a minimal investment in tax write-off from AIP's perspective. They weren't actually expecting this movie to be any good. They shot the interior shots in two repurposed aircraft hangars in Suffolk. Unfortunately, they had to re-record a lot of the audio they shot in those aircraft hangars because of the echo caused by the tin roof and the high ceilings. The outside shots were done in a variety of different filming locations across the region. Everything was said to go smooth with production, aside from the heated relationship between Price and Reeves. Reeves reportedly told Price that, I didn't want you, and I still don't want you, but I'm stuck with you. The very first time they met. Not exactly a great impression. He also didn't even go to pick him up at the airport. He sent someone else to do it. The two clashed constantly. 
Price said Reeves had no idea how to communicate with actors, and even refused to watch dailies. On the last day of filming, Price showed up drunk. Reeves was furious and told Philip Waterlove, who was one of the producers, that he would kill the bastard. Then, Waterlove overheard Reeves tell actor Ian Ogilvy to let him really have it with the prop axe in this next scene. Waterlove then went to Price and put foam under his costume to protect him from this. When Price finally saw the film a year later, he realized what Reeves was going for and wrote him a 10-page letter praising the movie. Years later, Price came to the realization that Reeves wanted a low-key, menacing character, and that he had been fighting him every step of the way. He claimed that if he just understood what Reeves wanted, he would have been more cooperative. It's nice to hear of those kind of reconciliations years later, and it's funny, this won't be the last time that Reeves and Price come up. They also ran into an issue with being short actors for a couple of scenes. In one, Waterlove even enlisted his wife to play a character. The final ending ultimately had to be changed due to a minor continuity error. The film was supposed to end with two men shooting two others, but in the previous scene, only one of the men were actually carrying a pistol. Reeves had to improvise the final ending because of this. There were extra nude scenes shot for the German version, but Reeves refused to be party to those. Instead, Tensor directed and another producer came to supervise. Reeves credited this producer with additional scenes by as a kind of in-joke. To Reeves, additional scenes meant a producer attempted to mess up a production by inserting his own parts. And from all accounts, it seemed like Reeves was pretty mad about this whole situation because this executive had never come around at all before, and now he's there just to supervise these nude scenes and make sure those get in the film. The film board wanted extensive cuts made to the film because they felt the violence was exploitative. Reeves made some of the smaller initial cuts, but refused to make any further cuts on the film after that point. Even with all these extensive cuts, there were still people claiming that this film was appalling and sadistic in the UK when it released on May 19th of 1968. So it was almost too much for the time, in the UK at least. When AIP saw the film, they were shocked by the quality and declared it as being one of the best films they ever got from England. They wanted to run it as a double bill with some of Corman's other Poe films, so they changed the name to The Conqueror Worm and added narration by Price from Poe's story at the beginning and the end. You know how AIP and Corman love a good Poe film, so... That's interesting, and that's why some people might know this one as the Conqueror Worm in the U.S., but for all intents and purposes, the original title was Witchfinder General. After filming wrapped, Reeves struggled to get any new projects off the ground. He suffered from depression and insomnia and was prescribed medications for those. The thing about Reeves is... We didn't see much, if you're looking up his filmography, there's not a whole lot from Reeves after, you know, these four films that he directed. Well, there is a reason for that. Oddly enough, he ended up working on another film for AIP with Price. So, whatever strained relationship they had must have been solved at this point. And what they started working on was 
Reeves was writing an adaptation of Poe's The Oblong Box, which would eventually get released by Gordon Hessler as the director. What unfortunately happened to Reeves, though, was that on February 11th, 1969, he was found dead in his bedroom. He died of an accidental barbiturate overdose at only 25 years old. So you have to think this guy was making Witchfinder General at like 23, 24. I don't know exactly when he started the process for this, but passed away at only 25 years old. Who knows what could have come out of Reeves if this continued, and I think that's a very interesting thing when you look at the filmography of some of these, the ones that were directing these films today especially, didn't really go on to do a lot, and it's really weird. These three movies that are kind of, or there's four movies here, and at least a couple of those are considered classics, or on that level, and they didn't really go on to do anything else. That's enough posturing from me, though. Let's go ahead and talk about Witchfinder General. So this was, once again, directed by Michael Reeves, came out in 1968, and ran for 87 minutes. The tagline reads, He'll hang, burn, and mutilate you. He's the Witchfinder General. Okay, I was going to read the letterbox synopsis, but it is garbage in just one run-on sentence. So basically what we have here is this is a quote-unquote recounting of, you know, Matthew Hopkins as a witch hunter and his life and times in this one particular village, pretty much affecting these particular people. We see Hopkins and his assistant, uh, John Steam, and they basically roll into these towns, get all these witches, people they accuse to be witches, torture them, get the local authorities to pay them, and then leave. And they pretty much do whatever they want. Now, some of these witch hunter movies, you will see the witch hunter can kind of be a little bit sympathetic or have some redeeming qualities. The thing about the witch hunting stuff in general is it was such a tragedy. And rightfully so, these films are kind of hard to watch. At least some of them. A couple of them, I would say all of these are hard to watch that we talked about tonight. I don't think any of them are that fun. Maybe The Wicker Man's a lot more fun than the other ones. But we're looking at a real subject. These things really happened. They happened in the United States. They happened in Europe. They happened in a lot of places where superstitions got involved and people were called witches for no other reason than maybe your neighbor just had a problem with you and wanted you to be, you know, go through this, get tortured, get burned, get thrown into a river, whatever it was. But that's that all happened. It's all real. Maybe this is coming off of because we see a lot of these witch or witch hunting movies in the 60s and 70s. I mean, we're coming off of an era. It's a little bit removed, but we had McCarthyism in the 50s, which was essentially a witch hunt. And you get all kinds of different witch hunts, especially today with the power that social media has given people. And you get, you know, people going after different people and trying to get them, quote unquote, canceled and all of this stuff. I mean, witch hunting has been a thing that's gone on throughout history, and it's not just about hunting witches. It is, you know, going out and pretty much accusing someone you don't like of something and trying to get them shamed or denounced in some public manner, you know, whether that's being... I feel like the degrees get less as they go along, but it's still just as bad. I mean, if we're talking the witch hunts that happened, you're talking about people's lives and getting tortured and all the agony they went through... If you're talking about McCarthyism, you're still ruining people's lives. A lot of those people were blacklisted and 
uh, weren't able to work and all this other stuff they had to go through. And then today, even, you know, you can still get your livelihood stolen uh, just because maybe some people don't like you or don't agree with what you're saying. So you have to be very careful. And that's a dangerous line to walk. And I think we see all of that on display here in Witchfinder General, and we see it all down and dirty. I mean, Matthew Hopkins is not a sympathetic character at all. He is 100%. He knows what he's doing. He knows he's exploiting people. He does it anyway. And then we have the characters of Richard Marshall and Sarah, and they are set to be wed, and he's going to take her away from this town. You know, her, I think, uncle is thinks he's in danger and you know as Hopkins and Steam roll into this town we know something bad is probably going to happen and it does and it draws the ire of Marshall who is this soldier um, in the civil war that's happening at the time in England and the rest of the plot kind of unfolds as Marshall going after Hopkins and Steam and you get the back and forth there I don't want to say a ton on Witchfinder General I know I've brought this up before on other episodes but it is a powerful movie, and it's not one I'm sure I need to see again. I've seen it a few times now, and I don't think I ever need to see it again. It's a great performance by Price. I think it's great performances all around. And the ending, even though they did have to change it, I think is pretty poignant. And I think it ended up maybe for the best, even if it wasn't going in the direction the filmmakers wanted it to go in. It's, <laughs> I think the best thing you can say about this is it just affects you. And it leaves you in a state after you watch it, you feel gross. And, you know, horror movies are known to do that. But I think here in particular, this one does a really good job of it. I'm going to stay vague on Witchfinder General. I think this is probably one of the more well-regarded or well-known films that I'm going to talk about on this episode. So most of you probably know what you're getting into with Witchfinder General. Uh, if not, tread lightly. Know there are certain topics in here that you're probably going to be grossed out by, that you're probably going to be, you know, appalled by. I wouldn't say appalled, but it's just it's just terrible and tragic seeing how people really and people really went through this stuff. Now, this isn't necessarily the true story. Yes, these characters did exist, or at least the Hopkins and Steam characters. But this stuff was really out there happening to people, and I, we're going to get a bit better picture as this episode moves along of like the the deeds that are done in the name of these people weren't actual witches. They were just killed and tortured without any reason, any rhyme or reason at all. And it's just so tragic. And I think you always have to keep that in perspective when you're thinking of this type of movie. First rating for Witchfinder General. I think it is one of the better, you know, we, it really did kind of kick off folk horror in England. I, I believe so. Now, listen, I'm going to dive deep into folk horror that all the Haunts BRs box set by Severin definitely helps with that. I think that will be a fun episode to do whenever I get around to that. But I think this one really did a good job of getting folk horror, at least in the mainstream and in people's thoughts and consciousness, and we would see a lot of good folk horror from England in the 70s and then in the years to come. So um, we're certainly talking about some of the best in this episode. Uh, rating for Witchfinder General, I think I would come in around at a 7 for Witchfinder General. I would, and that's only because of my sheer enjoyment of it. 
Uh, it's probably a better film than that, but that's just where I've always come down as far as how much I enjoy watching this one. And I can't tell you that I really do enjoy watching this one. The next one I enjoy a little more, but it's no less brutal. I, I don't know. There's just something about Witchfinder General where I don't I don't know if I'm ever going to see it again, but I've watched it several times. I think it is a really solid movie. I think it's pretty much a must see, especially if you're into the folk horror and this witch hunt type stuff. I think it's absolutely worth watching if you haven't already. Now, let's go ahead and go on to Mark of the Devil from 1970 and get into the background. The movie started out as a means to cash in on the success of Witchfinder General, and there are more than a couple similarities between the two. Initially, Adrian Hoven, who was an actor-turned-director and producer, planned to star, direct, and produce this movie. Hoven's version was supposedly a much different film, and it may have began life under the title of the Witch Hunter Doctor Dracula, which sounds very different from what we actually got, but uh, yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Hoven would eventually go on to direct Mark of the Devil 2, which was a German film from 1973, and I'll get into that in a minute, but he did not direct the first one. Filming was done in a castle in Austria that was actually used as a torture chamber to produce confessions back when these whole witch hunts were going on, so that would be pretty creepy and unsettling to be filming in a place like that, filming this type of film in a place like that. But hey, they did it. And if you don't have a lot of money for a set or anything like that, maybe your best option is to go to where they actually did the thing you're going to be making a movie about. One issue they ran into was with the clash of cultures on set. At some points, there were up to six different languages being spoken. I know I've talked about this, I can't remember what episode or what subject it was about, but there was definitely something where there were a lot of different people speaking a lot of different languages on set. I don't know how you could concentrate and get anything done as a director or anyone else in that environment unless, you know, you spoke all those languages. But that's pretty, pretty insane, but pretty cool that they had that big of, um, you know, worldwide reach with this one. The biggest contentious point around the making of the film was how much Hoven directed compared to Armstrong. Now, Armstrong was the director, but they're both credited in this one. And we know that Hoven was one of the producers and writers and everything else on this. And he eventually this was going to be his project, his complete project, pretty much. But apparently Hoven and cinematographer Ernst Kalinke filmed scenes behind Armstrong's back and would cut out some of Armstrong's stuff to add in his own. Armstrong claims that nothing substantial was added into the film, and it remains mostly his movie. He does say the water torture scene was one of Hoven's, though. I don't know how much was contributed by Hoven, but I do think there are parts that seemed a little disjointed or seemed like it wasn't quite flowing right or didn't quite belong. Hoven may have had a hand in making it feel that way with kind of chopping up this movie. And yeah, it definitely does feel disjointed if you're going to go and watch it. But regardless, I don't think it hurts the film overall. The film released in West Germany on February 19th, 1970. It would release in the U.S. in 1972. It had many U.S. releases over the years, all with varying amounts of cuts and censorship. And when I'm saying releases, I mean, you know, theatrical releases, VHS releases, Blu-ray releases. It was kind of all across the board with how they were censored. 
The film was even more successful than Witchfinder General, and that was contributed to its well-done marketing campaign. So that's pretty surprising to hear because I know that I think when you hear Mark of the Devil, I've heard in some circles that said is like an infamous title as, you know, this is not good stuff. This is a really messed up film. But I think Witchfinder General is as well. And I don't hear as much about that one. You would think that Witchfinder General would be the most successful, but sometimes it's not the one who gets there first. It's the iteration on it that takes off. So either way, I'm glad that that one did well. Okay, let's get into the sequels because they're even more interesting than some of the Italian film series. The sequel was the aforementioned Mark of the Devil 2, which was, I'm pretty sure, just a German film. I don't know if that got a U.S. release, or I'm not sure. Then the third entry was considered to be the Mexican film Alucarda, which was also called Sisters of Satan from 1977. And Alucarda is a very different film from Mark of the Devil, but here's where it gets even weirder is that Mark of the Devil 4 and 5 were two of the Blind Dead movies. Now, I couldn't specifically find which ones, so don't ask me there. But if you search Mark of the Devil on Letterboxd, the first two Blind Dead movies pop up, even though they were both released before Alucarda. I'm thinking all four of the Blind Dead movies were released before Alucarda. So that's a little weird. Maybe this is when they were coming to certain regions. Maybe this was the German names of these films. I'm not sure. But then there were two low-budget sequels later on. This is where it gets really interesting. In 1995, we had Mark of the Devil 666, The Moralist. And it was just last year that this one was announced, and that is a spoof film called Mark of the Devil 777, The Moralist Part 2. Uh, can't wait to see that one. But that is, it's just so strange the way these sequels kind of lined up. Mark of the Devil 2 makes sense. But then when you get with the other ones, it's like, none of this really makes any sense anymore. What are we doing? I don't know. But anyway, that is what I have on Mark of the Devil. Now, to set this one up to talk about it, you know, this is a German film. And it was released in 1970, or it was made in 1970 at least. Directed by Adrian Hoven and Michael Armstrong. That's at least how the credit goes. Again, we're not sure who did much. It's almost like a poltergeist situation with maybe even more of a nefarious nature because we know that Hoven got involved in everything. So it runs for 96 minutes, and the tagline reads, Positively the most horrifying film ever made. Uh, synopsis reads, in 1700s Austria, a witch hunter's apprentice has doubts about the righteousness of witch hunting when he witnesses the brutality, the injustice, the falsehood, the torture, and the arbitrary killing that goes on with the job. So this one, and that's much better than the Witchfinder General synopsis, by the way, but this movie has Herbert Lom in it as like the Lord Cumberland character who is the grand overseer of this whole operation. You know, he comes to town, he holds these trials. I think this is a pretty accurate representation, maybe even more so than Witchfinder General, of what went on in the times. I think it's it's maybe a little sensationalized and extreme at some points, but, you know, they have the whole thing where I don't think you obviously have people that are going to take advantage of these situations when they get in power. Here, I think it's almost like this guy absolutely believes that he has been sent by God to rid the world of these witches. 
but he's almost fair about it. And Udo Kier plays his kind of disciple. And we see when Udo Kier first appears on the scene, he stops someone from being taken to like a torture chamber because he's asking for this um, warrant or whatever his deposition. It's some kind of whatever they did to lay out the charges and everything else for these witches. So the whole you get to see the whole process of them having to have these depositions or whatever they are. They go in front of this court where the Lord Cumberland oversees everything and they have, you know, witnesses or bring up the charges. It's still not a great courtroom. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in front of one of these courts because he just like lets one lady go (laughs) just because I don't know. He says there's not enough substantial evidence, but it's really weird we get a lot of heartbreaking stuff that goes on with some of these characters. I think it really lets you more so than Witchfinder general. I get a good sense about who these characters are. And if they're not like deep characters, they're at least ones that I could get attached to. And they have very unique things about them. And I think that's one of the best things of Mark of the devil. You know, we get a couple later on who do these puppet shows and all this stuff. But you get some really gruesome characters in this. I mean, Herbert Lom starts off very pious and everything, and he thinks everything he's doing is right. And at some point, he takes a turn where he kind of goes into that Matthew Hopkins character. But he doesn't start out that way. You know, you've got Albino as a character who is a very despicable kind of gross character that uses his power and abuses his power. It's much more of that straightforward evil villain You've got Udo Kier, who believes one way, but we become sympathetic for because as the movie turns on, he kind of has doubts about what's going on. And I think there's some very good dialogue around this whole thing of how it starts out and it's one way. And he kind of re him and Lord Cumberland kind of reuse this dialogue or revisit this dialogue later on as things change. And they kind of go in opposite directions with these characters. They start out about the same and then they kind of go in polar directions. The woman at the center of all this, because there's always has to be a woman at the center. And that is the Vanessa Benedict character played by um, Oliveira Katarina. And she does a phenomenal job in this of kind of trying to sway Udo Kier and kind. You can tell she's talking way too freely around him for what he is, but you know, he helped her, he saved her and kind of gave her a hand up. So she's not afraid. So she talks, kind of these heresies and things, and he kind of lets it go, but she is the driving force in what's going on with this movie. I think just like Witchfinder General, this one has a very distinct and poignant ending. It's not gonna... Nothing's gonna end totally happy in any of these witch-finding movies, and I don't think they do... I mean, there's some bad stuff that goes on in the movies we're talking about today. I just... I've always liked this one better than Witchfinder General. I find the cast to be better, in my opinion. Better as in I like the characters more, and I think the characters are developed a little better. That's just in my opinion. I think that's maybe not the popular opinion. But where it gets a little strenuous is the torturing scenes, because they do get a little exploitative and on the sensationalized side. You're going to have that with this type of stuff, but... I don't know. Either way, I still like it. I still think it's a it's a good little movie. It's not it's I feel like it's less even though there's still very bad stuff going on in this movie. I think it's a little easier to watch than Witchfinder General. And I mean, I've watched this one a couple times in the last year or two. 
So I can vouch for it being easier to watch. I prefer this one to Witchfinder General. They're very similar films as this one was trying to ape that one. You can almost see it as like a German ripoff of it to try to cash in on the success. But either way, I think Mark of the Devil is a really good film. If you haven't seen that one, um, I think this one still has been seen by... Ah, I don't know. I'm looking at Letterboxd here. It doesn't look like a ton of people have seen it, but it looks like opinions are kind of mixed based on people. Some people like it. Some people don't. I think if you know what you're going in for and getting in for, it's absolutely worth a watch. For me personally, Mark of the Devil is a good, solid 8 out of 10 for me. That's just where I'm going to land on it. I really enjoy it. And, you know, it gives you that horrors of the time while still giving you characters you can invest in. And I think like better than the ones in Witchfinder General, even the villains, I think make you feel, I mean, Matthew Hopkins is played very well by price, but I think the villains here are on par with that as well. Okay, we are speeding right along here. Let's get into one of my absolute favorites of the 1970s. That is the Blood on Satan's Claw. Now, I think this still has the elements of that witch hunting or devil hunting type thing. I think this one absolutely fits into the genre or topic, I guess is a better way of saying it. So let's get into the background on the Blood on Satan's Claw, and I can get a little bit more into it. Tycon British instructed Robert Wynne Simmons to draft a script for an anthology film set in a Victorian-era village. So we're back with Tygon British here, and they're trying to do a follow-up of a folk horror-type movie from Witchfinder General. Wynne Simmons was inspired by the Manson family murders when he wrote the screenplay, and I can honestly see some of that in there, especially when we get into, you know, the cult that these young kids have or these teens have. I don't, you know, I don't really know how old anyone's supposed to be in this. One of the girls who looks the youngest in this, um, you know, she's to be wed. And I think she's much older than one of the other stars who looks older. So you just never know. But I can definitely see where the Manson family murders would play into some of it. You can see how all the parts of the anthology were woven into the final product as they centered around a woman being locked in an attic by her abusive aunt. So we have that near the beginning, but it's a little bit changed as far as like the character roles. Then you have a group of children who find a carcass in a field, which still happens in the movie. And um, yeah, it's definitely front and center to the story. And then a man who chops off his demonically possessed hand. Now, I think especially at the beginning of this film, everything kind of seems like its own vignette. You definitely can get the sense of how this was an anthology film. This is probably that leftover effect from the original story. It's kind of hard to have this plotted out and then, you know, we're going to change this on you. But I do think the beginning feels a little disjointed, a little bit like not disjointed necessarily, but it's like, here's this story and here's this story. And then they do kind of come together at some point. Tygon asked him to shift his story to an early 18th century farming village because they thought that the Victorian era was overused in that current market. They also came back with a specific list of things he had to include in the film due to the success of Witchfinder General. These included throwing a suspected witch in water and a book of witches. So that's what I'm talking about where they're setting out to kind of make that next Witchfinder General They've got this list like, hey, this was all in Witchfinder General. You need to include all this stuff in here because that film was successful. When asked about this, Wynne Simmons said, I didn't mind that so much. 
as it did show the incredible stupidity of the people at the time. And he's talking about the stupidity of the people living in that era. And it's absolutely misguided, if not just flat out stupid, the way they treated people with the witch hunting stuff. Tygon also made him change the initial ending, where the judge enlists a militia to murder the entire village in order to rid the world of the demon's evil. This was considered far too bleak, and I would—I don't know if I would have been happy if it ended that way either. Pierce Haggard was brought on to direct, and he worked with Wynne Simmons to adapt it from an anthology into a single cohesive narrative. So here's where we get that shift over where they're trying to make this one film instead of several different stories. He elaborated that even though he received a writing credit, all of the imaginative horror sequences came from Wynne Simmons himself. Linda Hayden, who kind of stars in this, she plays Angel Blake, was under contract with Tony Tenser and basically had to be cast in this film because she was under contract. And that's fine because I think at the end of the day it worked best to have Linda Hayden there. The judge character was offered to Peter Cushing, who declined due to his wife being sick at the time. They also decided to pass on Christopher Lee when his name came up due to him being so expensive. Eventually, they offered it to Patrick Weimark. Now, this would be Weimark's last English-language movie, as he died three months before the film released. And I think Weimark does a pretty good job in this. He's not really front and center. We mainly are focused on the village for most of this, but he still does a good job. It's sad that he didn't get to see what became of this, though, because he did pass away three months before the film came out. The movie had a budget of £82,000, which was raised up from the initial £75,000. Filming took place in the village of Boxbottom in Oxfordshire, and the church there has actually been abandoned since 1875. So that's pretty cool to have that connection that this was an actual church from that time period and hasn't been used for a very long time. The church was also used in the 1966 film The Witches. Due to the young cast, Haggard held two weeks of rehearsals before filming. The younger cast members claimed that Haggard's directing was easy to follow and the shooting went smoothly. So finally we have a movie where there's no major conflicts on the set. It seemed like Haggard was very understanding of these young actors who I'm sure some of them had never acted before. I think they all did a pretty good job and I think the rehearsals probably helped with that. It seemed like Haggard's knew what he was doing. Okay, I need to bring this quote up, which comes off as kind of weird and creepy, and the whole situation does when you really think about it. Anthony Ainley, who played the reverend in this film, was reminiscing on Linda Hayden, and he said this in an interview, when it came to doing the nude scene where Angel comes into the rectory at night and disrobes, this was done at least three times, and Linda was spot on with every take. She was a total professional with a refined sense of the erotic, unusual for her age. Wait for it. I believe she was only 17 at the time. <laughs> that's where we get into... Yeah, that's pretty creepy to say. Talking about, you know, her unusual eroticness for her age. And she was 17. So, I know it was a different time. I don't know what things look like in the, the UK compared to here. But that's still pretty creepy to think about. That should raise some red flags there that she was 17 and appearing in nude scenes, but like I said, I don't know what was going on at the time. There's also a pretty rough scene in the film involving a girl who at least seems younger than Hayden, and this is what I was talking about. 
Uh, it's hard to watch this scene regardless, but luckily she was actually six years older than Hayden and much more of an adult at that point. It still doesn't make it any less painful to watch. On a brighter note, I love Mark Wilkinson's strange soundtrack for this film. When added with the eeriness and taboo nature of the film, it really makes for a creepy and unique experience. The main little string of music or whatever it is, is pretty good. Canon Films acquired the U.S. distribution, and it premiered on April 15th of 1971 in the U.S. It would continue to play at drive-ins for the remainder of the year. It wouldn't premiere in the U.K. until July 16th of that year. It was passed with an X rating, which in the U.K. meant no one under 18 was to be admitted. The BBFC, or the British Board of Film Censors, required 10 seconds to be cut from a scene where Angel Blake performs oral sex on the demon, and the remainder of the scene was also ordered to be darkened, as well as Blake's nude scene from earlier in the film. It opened in a 2,600-seat theater in London, but was removed after a week due to the low attendance, so that's a little bit where they were they secured this great theater, but maybe they were overshooting their estimates. I'm assuming this had a hand in Haggard not doing much of note after this movie. He would go on to direct 1981's Venom, though, which isn't a bad movie and does have Klaus Kinski in it. Okay, on to setting up this movie and talking about it a little bit. So, The Blood on Satan's Claw was released in 1971 and ran for 97 minutes, of course, directed by Piers Haggard. The tagline reads, A Chill-Filled Festival of Horror. The synopsis reads, The accidental unearthing of Satan's earthly remains causes the children of a 17th century English village to slowly convert into a coven of devil worshippers. So yeah, this definitely has that, like I was saying, it toes the line, but I think what you have here, I mean, they even mention coven in this, and a lot of the times when we see these older set witch movies, that's what they're talking about. You're worshipping the devil. You're basically existences for Satan, and that's kind of what we've seen. So this one pushes the boundaries a little more than the last two in the sense that there is much more fantastical stuff at work in this one. You know, it's almost like this plague has gone through this town of people who were once, you know, devout Christians, and now they're taken over by a sinister entity. And it starts with, and it's like all great films of this type, you know, they're children who are evil. And they're not necessarily evil themselves, but they've kind of been seduced by the power. And it's not everyone either. It's not all of the kids, but most of them for sure. And there's kind of this figure at the center of it who is Angel Blake, played by Linda Hayden. And she is the kind of queen bee. She is the head figure. She's the one directly convening with Satan. And she's leading the kids through everything. And she's trying to entice the kids to join her side and do this thing. It's Again, I think a plague is a good form of reference because that's how it moves through this town. It starts in the beginning with this almost cold open that we have. We just see it continue on throughout and kind of grow and grow and fester. Now, why is it affecting the minds of the young people and not necessarily the older ones? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it's trying to say there, if they're easily influenced or if it's just because Angel Blake is leading them. I don't know. But Blood on Satan's Claw, I feel like is one. Now, it seems like recently 
And I think it helped because I believe this was on Shudder at one point. But this was one where I don't think a lot of people had talked about for a long time. And for my money, I mean, this is right up there with The Wicker Man. And it's up there as one of my all-time favorite folk horror films. And again, I said one of my favorite of the 70s. I think it's a really strong film. I think Haggard, it's a shame that Haggard didn't go on to do a lot more because I think he did a really good job with this one. A lot of that probably had to do with, you know, them getting basically disgraced in their theater run. But I just love the kind of creepy and eerie atmosphere. I think it creates something otherworldly and unnatural in this period piece. Does a good job with getting you invested in these characters, especially the ones that especially the ones we want to root for. And I mean, it gives you some clear antagonist and it's not just Satan. I mean, you grow to despise some of these children characters by the end of this movie. And the weird thing again, is it's not clear how old these kids are. Some of them look like they're, you know, in their early teens, even though they might not be. And some of them look like they might be a little older. So I'm not sure what the ages were on these kids. I'm sure it's probably in their teens at some point or early 20s. You know, one of the the girl that I mentioned, it's very weird, who is engaged. She looks like she's extremely young and the guy she's with looks like a man. So I'm not sure how old he was in this, but it almost looks a little weird to have them being, you know, engaged to each other. But anyway, I'm not going to hold on that point, but I think the finale to this thing is pretty wild, and the way it plays out is maybe a little unexpected. We do have that witch hunter aspect. It's just almost we're hunting out the witches, but we're also trying to get out Satan. The way it's unveiled with like the devil's mark and all this stuff is also really cool. I think at one point this was going to be called something like the devil's skin or something like that, and that gives you a good idea of how this almost demonic plague, how they mark their victims or mark their followers and that stuff. They do have these almost rituals out in this old, destroyed, like dilapidated church. And it's just from start to finish, this one engrosses you. And I just don't think it's talked enough about. I don't think people get into this one enough. So I wanted to shine a spotlight on this while I'm on this topic. And again, for my money, this is one of the better folk horror films out there. It's really weird to me, and it's probably because these ones were big enough to get their own separate releases. But it's kind of weird to me that that all the Haunts BR set didn't have any of these films on it. And we know Mark of the Devil was already released by Arrow. I think I don't know what Witchfinder General who has released that one. I'm sure there's something out there for it. Blood on Satan's Claw, I think, is a little harder to get. I have a Region B one that I think is all plays in all regions, but The Wicker Man 2, I guess, has its own set of Blu-rays and all that, and they're probably just sticking with maybe the lesser-known stuff in that, but it's, it's weird to me that three of the most prominent folk horror movies aren't included in that set. Either way, for me, this is like a 9 out of 10. I keep going on about it, but I really love it. And if you haven't seen this one, you need to check it out. I think you can still catch it on Tubi, I believe. So I can't vouch for the 
what that print of the film looks like, because I know the one for Mark of the Devil. I watched this last time or I watched maybe the first time I watched it. It was not very good. The Arrow video one does a better job of that. But yeah, definitely get out there and check this one out if you can. I highly recommend it. Moving on to the last movie of the night, the one that's kind of the oddball, but I was going in chronological order to how these things released or what their date was. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the classic The Wicker Man, and that is not the Nicolas Cage one, of course, that is the one from the 1970s. I'm surprised actually that there's not more about this one, but I do have some cool stories, and it's cool how this one got off the ground and who was behind it. In 1971, Christopher Lee met with writer Anthony Schaefer. Lee wanted to break out of the roles he had been typecasted into and wanted to do some more varied and interesting acting. So Lee was kind of done with the Hammer stuff. He was kind of done playing Dracula. He wanted to do some things that were more out there and getting himself out of his comfort zone. At some point, Robin Hardy and the head of British Lion production studio, Peter Snell, got involved with these two and started brainstorming. They were interested in making a film that focused on the old religion of England in order to provide a contrast from the current crop of British horror films. And if you think around this time, we still do have Hammer stuff coming out. You've also got Amicus stuff coming out for the anthologies and all that. So they're just looking to do something a little different. And I would say they absolutely succeeded in that. I don't know if this had any impact on Schaefer's next move or not, but he and Lee purchased the rights to the novel Ritual by David Pinner. It was about a devout Christian policeman who was investigating the perceived ritualistic murder of a young girl in a rural village. Sound familiar? Pinner wrote Ritual initially as a screenplay for director Michael Winner. Winner had John Hurt in mind for the lead role in this supposed screenplay that was being written, but he eventually declined, and Penner was encouraged to turn the screenplay into a novel instead. When Schaefer was putting together a script, he realized a direct adaptation wouldn't work, and decided only to use the basic premise of that novel. Schaefer extensively researched pagan culture and took the idea of the Wicker Man from the Gauls. And just for reference, the Gauls were one of the civilizations that make up, I mean, they lived in like modern day France, uh, Belgium, Germany, Switzerland area, around in there. And they were around the time of the Roman Empire. The Romans led several expeditions into that territory trying to conquer that land as well. But anyway, that's just a little background on where the Wicker Man idea actually came from. So he set out to make a film that wasn't dependent on gore and violence to be scary. He was tired of all the viscera that he was seeing in the current films and thought he would do something a little more heady. The film production company, British Lion, was in a financial crisis during the production of the movie. A businessman named John Bentley bought them, and in order to prove to labor unions he wasn't just buying the company to sell off assets, he had to rush out the wicker man to prove that he was interested in getting a movie out to market. This meant filming in the fall of 72, instead of waiting until the next spring when they, you know, the film is set in May. Filming off-season forced the crew to do things like glue green leaves on trees to make up for it. Christopher Lee wanted to make this film so badly 
that it's rumored that he even worked on it without pay. So Lee is definitely into this. He seems like he is in the idea. And again, he's trying to break out of the mold that he was put into. So he's really into this project, which is great that he's so passionate about it. And you can really tell in the end product. Most of the filming took place in various Scottish villages. Before production was finished, British Lion was purchased by EMI Films. They suggested a more upbeat ending where Rain put out the fire during the finale, but those working on the project rejected this, and you know, rightly so. I think the dark ending is the thing that makes this movie. So, on to the film censorship part, which we've known. And if we flash back to the Video Nasty episodes that I did, we know that the UK was very tough on movies, especially horror movies, around this era. So Hardy had to cut around 20 minutes of the movie, which mostly consisted of scenes. To get the film where it needed to be, Hardy had to cut around 20 minutes of the movie, which mostly consisted of scenes on the mainland that fleshed out Sergeant Howie's character. Some of his early investigations on the island and some of his conversations with Lee's character, which has said that Lee was not happy that the, the conversation was cut. Test screens were ran the week of December 6th, 1973, and the film rolled out into wide release in January of 1974. The UK version was cut down from 99 minutes to 87 minutes, and Lee argued that it ruined the film's continuity. It would run in a double bill with Don't Look Now. How would you like to like to see that one? Those are two pretty powerful films from this time. But The 99-minute reel was then sent to Roger Corman to see how he would release it in the U.S., and he decided to cut it to 86 minutes, so he cuts it more than the British version was. Corman never ended up securing the rights, though, and WB ended up distributing it in America, and that's probably your answer as to why... It was never in that All the Hans Bihars box set. Okay, so I want to get into the additional cuts and the different releases of this film throughout the years, because this is pretty interesting stuff. In the mid-70s, Hardy, Schaefer, and Lee searched for an original copy of the film, but couldn't find it. They were reminded of Corman's copy and worked with the current U.S. rights holder to release a 96-minute version in 1979, so they were only a few minutes off the original movie. In the 1980s, a VHS with the 99-minute cut was also available. So we've got a couple different versions here. Studio Canal ended up getting the rights to this at some point for worldwide distribution and was able to piece together a 91-minute version called the Final Cut in 2013 and released it as that. So from what I saw on this, they kind of had a hard time because Corman no longer had his print of the film And they had to go to someone else and kind of take and piece stuff together to get this thing to that 91 minute cut because they don't keep the a lot of the times in the old days, they didn't keep the negatives or anything else, anything they weren't going to use. If it was on the cutting room floor, stayed on the cutting room floor and it was just thrown away. It's a miracle that we've gotten that kind of a a film together. And I just recently bought that Blu-ray with that cut on it. I haven't got a chance to watch that yet because... It came after I'd rewatched the movie, but I'm interested in seeing how that one plays out. Much like the other directors in this episode, Hardy didn't really direct much else. He directed a spiritual successor called The Wicker Tree in 2011, though it mainly received negative reception. 
I haven't seen The Wicker Tree, but I haven't heard a lot good about it. And I don't think from what I'm hearing that it does a very good job of carrying on the legacy of The Wicker Man. The last little note I have before I go into setting up the movie is that this film was actually responsible for bringing the Wicker Man into popular culture as far as like the the symbol and the icon and burning the Wicker Man and all that. That had apparently, and it's hard to hard to think about that and didn't realize that because knowing about the Wicker Man, I just assumed the Wicker Man was copying real life stuff. But yeah, apparently that was, this was the film that brought the Wicker Man into a popular culture type thing. All right, so The Wicker Man was directed by Robin Hardy, came out in 1973, and ran for 94 minutes. The tagline reads, Flesh to touch, flesh to burn. Don't keep The Wicker Man waiting. And the synopsis is, Police Sergeant Neil Howie is called to an island village in search of a missing girl whom the locals claim never existed. Stranger still, however, are the rituals that take place there. So you probably don't need me to go down through and summarize The Wicker Man for you. It is an absolute classic. It's kind of a weird film, and it's kind of an odd film. But, you know, it's just a little offbeat and a little little weird. But I think that's what makes it great, because we have this, and again, in this other cut, we see more scenes on the mainland. I'm interested to see what that is and how we build out Sergeant Howie's character. What we have, basically, is Sergeant Howie lands his plane in the water, He's going to look for a missing girl in this village on the island. And he gets there, and he's this very devout Christian. He's engaged to be married. He's very much like a zealot in the way he thinks of this stuff. Or he gets, I don't want to say he's a zealot, but he gets like so up in arms about all of the stuff that's going on in this island. He starts seeing these different pagan customs that are going on and naked children running around and all this other stuff and he you know sees what they're learning in the schools and he sees that they're about to have this May Day f- festival and celebration and it's just appalling to him and he like cannot believe it and he keeps threatening to call you know go back to the mainland and get the police and bring them over here and deal with these pagans and all this stuff so that's his main goal there he's trying to find out what happened to this girl but no one seems to recognize her He goes to her mother and she says, you know, no, I only have one daughter and she's right over there. So he's very perplexed by this whole thing. And the whole movie is him trying to find out what happened to this girl. Is she actually there? What's going on? And there's a ton of musical numbers in this movie. It almost could be considered a musical, I think. I mean, there's a lot in there. And there are some classics things like, you know, The Landlord's Daughter and all these songs are really cool. There's a Baba Black Sheep song that's playing as he's searching and it's superimposed over what he's doing and going through the town. And once we get to like the May Day celebration and all that, the visuals and all the cool customs and everything they're doing is just so engaging and enthralling. And The Wicker Man just pulls you in and really grabs hold of you, especially near as we near its conclusion. Again, it it kind of meanders a little bit near the maybe the middle part of the film. But all in all, it's a really solid film. The ending is just 
as I alluded to, the ending is unflinching and kind of goes through and maybe to places that you didn't expect it to when you're watching this movie. I think that's the great thing about folk horror is a lot of the times folk horror doesn't really end happy. I wouldn't say any of these four films that I've talked about tonight have a truly happy ending. They're just kind of, you know, it was hard living in that time period. I would say that most of these are set in in the older times. It was rough. Life was rough. And I think these films accurately reflect that we're not always going to have a good ending. And even though The Wicker Man is set in a more modern period, they're still dealing with a culture that dates back centuries and centuries from from this point. And, you know, I wish more films would get back to that, the old religions and stuff. We see a ton of Lovecraftian stuff where people are worshiping the old gods and all that. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, you know, the Celtic traditions and all these other old pagan religions that are are really cool and really fun to get into and see, especially what they're getting into in this film. I really think that's cool. And I wish more films would just go into that. And they really don't. But I think that's why The Wicker Man is so unique and stands on its own. And it really is its own type of movie. But I could go on and on about The Wicker Man. I'm sure everyone here, I'm sure most people listening have watched The Wicker Man. And if you haven't, uh, what are you doing? You need to get out there and see The Wicker Man immediately. I, I think there's part of me that thinks that this won't be for everyone. This is heralded as a classic a lot of the times and you do have Christopher Lee just chewing scenery and playing one of his most extravagant roles like he is really into this role and it's it's great there's a scene where he's they're dancing down a path and Lee is just (laughs) the way what Lee is doing in that scene is just incredible but I would give the wicker man around a nine the same as I did with blood on Satan's claw I'd say those two are very close for me, and they are definitely at the top of my folk horror list, but it's an absolute recommendation for me. All right, so that's a little peek into the world of folk horror and witch hunting and all of that stuff. I wanted to do this just to get into in deeper to some of these weirder 60s and 70s films that I really enjoy. It's going to get even weirder next time, and there's going to be some more obscure movies that I'm talking about when we get into talking about the actual witches. I'm not going to reveal all of those just yet. I will leave that for your imagination. But if you think 60s and 70s witch movies, we're not going to hit any of the big time classics. These are going to be either ones that I've discovered recently that are newer because they were released on some you know, revival from some niche Blu-ray label, or whatever it may be. But that's what is going to be on the next episode is covering some 60s and 70s witches. Okay, but before I go, I have a little housekeeping to do, and we're going to be talking about another watch list roulette. And the one that came up this time, and I'm still doing 1984, by the way, I started that a couple episodes ago, and that will continue out throughout probably the first part of this year as I keep moving through that year and the films I need to watch from there in the hopes of building a solid top 10 list. The one that came up this time, and this isn't necessarily unheard of because I've definitely had it come up where something's not necessarily just straightforward horror movie. I have problems calling this one horror much at all. I think there are definitely horror segments, but the movie I got was Dreamscape. 
and this is directed by Joseph Rubin. Runs for 99 minutes. The tagline is awful. It is close your eyes and the adventure begins. The synopsis reads, A government-funded project looks into using psychics to enter people's dreams with some mechanical help. When a subject dies in their sleep from a heart attack, Alex Gardner becomes suspicious that another of the psychics is killing people in the dream somehow, and that it is causing them to die in real life. He must find a way to stop the abuse of the power to enter the dreams. Now, this is an interesting film. Again, I don't know if I'd classify it as horror necessarily. I didn't know much about this other than Dennis Quaid was in it. So you've got Dennis Quaid starring in this as this psychic who's trying to enter people's dreams and help them out. He's the lead, and then you've got Max von Sydow and Christopher Plummer in this. And they all play pretty good roles. I think it's a really cool concept, and I like the idea of them going into people's dreams and really, the dreamlike imagery that you get when you go into those is really cool. Now, it has its shelf life because at some point in this movie, it just goes too far for me and I get a little turned off by what's going on in the dream world. I understand that that's really maybe what you would do in the dream world. But but let me tell you, the actor who plays Tommy Ray in this, who is David Patrick Kelly, just goes way too over the top for me. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but it's very 80s in the way he does this thing. But something that was pointed out to me, and I believe by Nathan Barlebaugh, that this film did release before Nightmare on Elm Street. And this was the first case of, you know, someone in a dream world having claws on their hands or, um, you know, the metal knives on their hands. So... Maybe that predates Nightmare on Elm Street a little bit. I don't know. The best dream of all is, you know, Dennis Quaid's character is trying to help out this young boy. And I think that is the best dream when he goes in there and this this boy's just having these very dark dreams. And that's the most horror part of this movie is when Dennis Quaid and this young boy are going through this. And I think that's where a lot of the great... And it looks kind of like, I don't know, it's something like you would see in like a German silent film. It's very much that type of sequence. And it's, I think that's my favorite part of the film, other than the fact that they're entering people's dreams. And Dennis Quaid plays a little too much of an Indiana Jones, Han Solo type here. You know, he is definitely playing that type of character, which, I you know, when they find him, he's using his abilities to win at the racetrack. So... You can only imagine where it goes from there. I don't want to talk about Dreamscape too much on here just because I don't know if it's necessarily horror. I think in the end with Dreamscape, I would recommend it if you're looking for a fantasy film for sure. I think Quaid and a lot of the cast are solid in it. My only hesitation and what I tell you to do is don't go in if you're looking for full on horror, but there are definitely horror moments in this movie. I think this would have been perfect if I saw it when I was younger, but unfortunately I didn't. And that's the case with a lot of these older movies I just haven't. So I have to go off of what my gut's telling me and what it's telling me that this is around like a 6.5. I could recommend you getting into it if you're into for like a fantasy adventure film and you don't mind a little bit of 80s cheese going on with stuff. But for me, that's where I land on it. I don't even know if I will include it on my 1984 horror list. I probably will, but... I'm not sure yet, because it does play a lot more like an adventure action movie for a lot of it.
All right, so that's a wrap on this episode. As far as plugs, I want to thank everyone who had listened to the Best of 2022 episode. I love doing those episodes and got a lot of good feedback on that. So appreciate everybody that was involved with that. And my plugs where you can find the podcast, you can find the show over on Twitter at Screaming Ages. I have an open Facebook group, which is Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. You can send an email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. If you wanted to leave a voicemail, you can call in at 740-297-6556. I'd appreciate it if you're enjoying the show, if you tell your friends, if you leave a review on the podcast service of your choice, and just spread the word as much as you can if you're enjoying it. You can also check me out on Phantom Video, and I was a guest recently on Phantom Galaxy, which is right now the parent site to Phantom Video, or the parent, like, where it's hosted. And on Phantom Galaxy, we went through and talked about our top 10 all-genre movies, so not horror, anything other than horror. They do a separate horror episode. But we did that, and I was joined by Nathan and Bill, who are the host over there, as well as Victor Rodriguez, Pearl Morgan, and Greg Morgan from Land of the Creeps. It was a good time, and if you want to get into something that's not necessarily straight horror, there are a lot of good recommendations in that episode. Uh, once again, yes, I am on Phantom Video with Dave Becker and Nathan Bartleball. We haven't put out an episode in a while, but we are getting ready to do some kind of a best of 2022 wrap up for physical media releases. So stay tuned for that. With all that being said, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson.